It's Emma. And it's Nico. And welcome back to the Podling. So as we talk about linguistics, there are many subdivisions of topics we can discuss, whether that be through the subsections of linguistics like phonology, morphology, syntax, or semantics. We can also talk about subsections like historical linguistics, etymology, or sociolinguistics, among others. Today we'll be sitting down and chatting with a fellow linguistics student, Nathan Shepard, on what effects linguistics has on self-identity and expression, and why it is so important to discuss it. With that, Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself and your research project? Yeah, uh, my name is Nathan Shepard. I go by he, they, and she. I am a fifth year senior linguistics undergrad student. I guess that's what you would say. Yeah. Um, almost done with it right now. And I specifically work with applied linguistics, learning how linguistic theory applies to, I guess, the world in which language touches it. And isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? Yeah. <laughs> we're <laughs> all trying good, to apply it, right? Yeah. So you have some interesting research that you're coming in here today with. Do you mind sharing, you know, what this project is about? Yeah, this was for a uh, linguistics education and social justice course uh, with very interesting. a Dr. Ann Lobeck. And mm-hmm. um, you know, after class, I would come into the Ling office and talk to y'all quite a bit. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Really, what we were engaging in was how does language impact the learning environment? And how, I guess, in my own words, is how can, as linguists, uh, use linguistic theory to make the learning environment more efficient and pretty much what that means is just like how do we pay attention to language what kind of language is offered in the learning environment and how us as individuals and as language users and hearers make ourselves out of that really yeah um yeah so i i had a book of applied linguistics it was from the cambridge applied linguistics series that i found at some secondhand bookstore down where i live it was very useful and it had a bunch of good research in it, research from a linguist called Suresh Kanagaraja. I was reading that name in yeah. in your paper, and I, you know, I was about to ask like, how to pronounce that. So yeah. I'm very glad that you brought it up. Uh, and, I, and I do German, as y'all do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, Emma. Yeah. Specifically, Emma. Nico does it casually. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I count in that respect. <laughs> but when I first came to to Anne Lobeck to. Uh, talk about this research i pronounce it kind of garaha with a <laughs> no hard j's here yep no hard j's here. um yeah other than that like all this research that i found in this handbook was talking about how to do education well and how to do it critically right because you know linguistics as a field in itself is really important i think in terms of just how we educate people in school mm-hmm. we're all operating within you know a linguistic landscape. We're all speaking, we're all talking, we're all using language to interact. And so, you know, the, how the method in which we conduct that interaction is really important, you know, as you were talking about. Very genuinely, language is the, the medium of how education is carried. The medium of life, really. Yeah, really. All right. Well, I guess a question that we can start off with about Mm -hmm. this is what, what sort of things made you decide on the topic of your research? Like, was your own self-identity part of the inspiration for this? Just guide us through what mm-hmm. inspired you for this project. Yeah, really, I throughout this entire education course, we had been looking at specific schools 
and other podcasts that kind of went through very particular case studies of how individuals can affect the school system and the power dynamics that are replicated there. And it just made me think over and over and over again about like the crazy stuff and the weird environment that public education was. Uh, In my experience, I'm sure other people (laughs) also experienced that, you know, and I just wanted to really dive in and like be able to put down on paper how language uh, plays in part for that. And uh, maybe that in a way could help me process my own experience. Right. Which I imagine could be pretty difficult trying to put, you know, all of that down in yeah. words. It's something very intricate and something very like, you know, multifaceted that I guess yeah, the, sounds like it would be really difficult to describe. The, the one thing that I really came away with and a lot of what the researchers were, were saying is that there is just so many intersectionalities between so many different forces that all play in a part of kind of changing the way that our words are expressed and uh, how we how we hold words with ourselves with ourselves yeah and so kind of going off of this whole idea of self-identity and in, in the school systems and whatnot <laughs> how does one talk about self-identity from a linguistic perspective would you say yeah so there's some really cool interdisciplinary approach to kind of creating a good formula for summing up the self and identity, which is right. insane to, to kind of cop that up. <laughs> and I imagine, yeah. like, there's probably multiple very different methods of going about it. Yeah, which is different you know, opinions and different philosophies. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like probably people's own self-identity influences how they, you know, represent self-identity in writing, like how they define it, Yeah, which is kind of crazy to think about. Very meta. Yeah, we are definitely like fish in a fishbowl. With language as well. Yeah, um, so some of the really cool work that Connor Garaja does is get all these ideas together from different fields that all talk about the formulation of identity, who we are in the self, and kind of applies that linguistic framework to it. And the big ideas that come through is that maybe we can look at, I, I front this in my paper that Identity is not given, uh, Mm -hmm. nor is it a monolith or immutable, right? And we can see that because, I mean, obviously through personal experience, right, people change. Um, All all, the time. But we also know that we adopt different identities with the kind of words that we use. And also in, like, different social settings yeah, with, right. different, with different people. You know, I could be a different person with two different groups. Now we know code switching exists exactly. or uh, mm-hmm. translingualism. It's a very fluid thing. Yeah, right. So we know from that, right, we're able to define within the linguistically that the self uh, can change with language and uh, is recipient to the resource of language. And so that's kind of the basis of approaching this kind of study is knowing that it isn't given Uh, that language impacts it and is subject to kind of the linguistic resource. I guess I'm curious, you know, how through this experience that you've been researching and writing about this, how you would say that your concept of self linguistically has changed and, you know, how you would define it now after going through this process of looking through all of these scholars' work, compiling all of this information, Mm -hmm. Like, how would you say that has changed what you thought about before to what you now think about identity and self? Honestly, I think uh, it, it might have been Pavlenko or Sunderland who mentioned, and I, and I have quoted this in my paper, that whatever marks a potential advantage can mark a potential disadvantage. And for me, like, in the bigger picture about identity, it kind of opened my eyes up to really, like, how we should be viewing the whole problem in general, right? Uh, when we're in the school environment and 
it after studying this, it, it let me go a little bit more in depth and to get under the surface level and understand that, you know, linguistically, it's just not that simple. And for myself, a lot of the study on uh, on formulating my identity or me, um, mediating my own identity made me realize how much of it, how much I, how much work I actually did conduct and how much work we all conduct to do that. So in your paper, you talk a lot about your own self-identity and your own process with identifying yourself. Um, what connections can you talk about between your own experience and the experiences that you discuss within this paper? Mm -hmm. So from a lot of the paper and all the research that we we're looking at were focused on more evident power dynamics and kind of how they are expressed within the school system. And I realized for myself that I was kind of a, a bit of an outsider, but I was also able to be friends with a bunch of different types of people of a bunch of different types of backgrounds mm -hmm. and you know in, in kind of typical proto-linguist fashion I was paying attention to how people talked and uh, how the words changed right. it's like once you mm -hmm. notice things you can't unnotice them right. and you just are paying attention constantly especially was just like how people of different people of different colors and backgrounds were talked to differently spoken mm -hmm. to differently within this kind of innately authoritarian environment there right. there is an authority present kind of always yeah i was kind of a loner um or an outsider and i was with a lot of these kind of queer punk kids who are who i'm very close with and i had to really break away from i mean mediating my own identity was kind of de-learning a lot of the gendered language right. because you talk about you know throughout your your paper how how important of a role the school system plays on mm -hmm. mediating identity and I, I think specifically it was was it Elenco and Sunderland there was a section about how you know when you're in school especially when you're a child there's this sort of the boys group and the girls group mm -hmm. and trying to fit in with one of those groups and that can kind of stifle figuring out what your identity is so i can imagine it's pretty difficult you know to try and break away from that exactly. you know like what you've grown up knowing and trying to break away from that like learned knowledge and learned behavior right there's a conditioned um conditions really yeah. right uh on on what you should be you know which just unfairly puts people in positions of of behaviors that are not necessarily associated with yeah. them or they're comfortable with and i think like I was a young, like a young boy with ADHD and stuff like that. And uh, there's this notion that like, yeah, like you were rambunctious and uh, loud. Mm -hmm. um, disruptive. Disruptive, yeah. right? And for little girls with ADHD, just because what I believe is like being socialized to be quiet and subservient, mm -hmm. that they just weren't being picked up as much as young boys with ADHD were. And so, you know, we kind of follow that line. And I don't know, in the era that I was growing up in, kind of, um, you know, right after the 2000s and stuff like that, Ritalin was being pushed really hard. And the people who got that were the young boys who got caught. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't help but feel like linguistically there's something there that might have a differential access, right? Uh, whatever potential marker is showing any positive, might, right. there might be a negative. Definitely. I guess kind of like taking just a step back for mm -hmm. a second, I just wanted to mention like just thinking about trying to unlearn all of these things. Like it seems like unlearning stuff is more difficult than learning mm -hmm. stuff, you know? All of these, like, I don't want to say habits, but just molds, I guess, that have mm -hmm. been put in place for so long. 
I guess like especially in your experience just like trying to because a lot of it is subconscious like mm -hmm. we don't even think about all these things it's just like how we've grown up our whole lives so yeah just trying to step away from that and think think about things from an outside right. perspective sounds like you know just very difficult yeah and like some people have to do that more than other people exactly and, uh, Thing, one of the things that I realized was just like, oh man, like I, I'm definitely in the position privileged enough where, like, if I really wanted to, I could have just never questioned my own identity and questioned the way that I talk to people or the way that people talk to me. But it, it that's I feel like a disservice to myself right. like, and yeah. the people around me. Like, right, you know, I like uh, and and I felt like that there were parts of me that could not possibly do that, and I think that. I don't know, speaks to how much everybody, um, no matter what, will create a space to mediate themselves with language. And that's what Conor Graja calls the pedagogical safe house, the safe house in general. And it's in, in every little thing, in every controlled environment, there are places in which people make themselves. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the pedagogical safe <laughs> house, right? So... I guess we're wondering if you can expand on that yes. a little bit, uh -huh. provide maybe some more context for our listeners what that what that might be. Yeah, and also just pedagogy in general, right? Like as a as an idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, pedagogy as in the study of how to teach better, pretty much, or right. the study of teaching. You get quite into the meta. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right definitely. There. Like from what I understand, uh, it seems like sort of a space where you're free of any sort of like authority that's mm -hmm. telling you how to represent yourself. Is that yeah. kind of a to, correct? Typically, I think the freedom comes from like freedom of not to be surveilled uh, and have your language surveilled. And, you know, this could be under the eye of authority, like within the classroom, passing notes and stuff like that or quiet conversations, as long as the language is, is passed almost alternatively um, mm -hmm. and maybe uh, at times it has to be done in secret. Conor Graja states that the safe house is really dynamic and mm -hmm. um Looks different for everybody. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, and different for uh, the separate conditions that different groups have to negotiate themselves with. And we, we see that all the way from, you know, public schools, private schools, whatever, all the way to like incredibly high controlled environments like prisons. And even in spaces that don't have like apparent strict hierarchy or at least like mainstream forms of authority, still people, people find a way. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there where their their sort of safe house could be in in like a classroom yeah. setting, where maybe that's where they feel safe expressing themselves the most. If they have like a very supportive teacher or something, mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a group in that setting that makes them feel comfortable with themselves, maybe their home life they don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a possibility that that could be their safe space to represent themselves how they feel. Yeah, so in terms of application, right, like most ideally, we would want to be able to create safe houses mm -hmm. for linguistic negotiation, right, for people to be able to figure themselves out with the words that they use and play those language games. And of the work of uh, Lynn that I brought up in the paper, it was confronting that as a linguist, you know, doing this like master's teaching English as a second language program in these in this uh, Hong Kong university. You know, this is somebody who studied like, you know, critical pedagogy, you know, somebody who's thinking really hard about how to teach language in the right way. And she really she realized that, you know, even then you still replicate, you know, these behaviors, these replicate these authorities and uh, will sideline certain types of communication over others. 
And um, so in the application of this all, there are, uh, and I think uh, it was uh, um, Pavlenko has this like maybe five or six points of how to make like an actually like linguistically accessible classroom. So just like attempting to do that, (laughs) it's a a big undertaking, but... um, And it's so like scenario specific Mm -hmm. that it's difficult to provide any sort of like overarching, you know, these are the things that you need to include, these are the things that you need to not include, because it could really differ greatly just based on a whole bunch of factors. Mm -hmm. And so, so like at the very least, I think like... You have to treat people like people, <laughs> right? Because that's what they are. People are um, people. You have to respect their language because it's their language, and right. you have to respect people for their identity because that's something that they have to form. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's something that people live with. You know, right. it's not something it's that them. you can extract from them. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's a part of the person. And so, like, I think honestly, like, the way to to be a safe house for people is to just like. Uh, it starts at this kind of like moral ethical level right and hopefully it follows through but also you have to do really a great deal of learning and reflection upon your experience and the way that those words still inhabit you mm-hmm. um, definitely. definitely a very meta process yeah <laughs> metalinguistic metacognitive of, yeah a lot of thinking about things that i think about <laughs> yes yes mm-hmm. i'm gonna switch gears a little bit okay. this is just kind of like a no, at your paper, but I noticed that you made a reference to a Riot Girl song. Yes, uh-huh. that was very in, like influential on your journey to mm-hmm. your self identity and linguistically speaking. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we talked about um, there's a band called Bikini Kill, who's a very popular Riot Girl band and who has cut through the mainstream quite a bit. You can you can hear Bikini Kill's Riot Girl in a lot of movies and stuff like that. And there's a lot of like meta punk studies to talk about and the meta ethics of kind of the punk movement like riot girl was pretty trans exclusionary when it came through mm-hmm. um and kind of essentialist but i talked about riot girl because number one it comes from the pacific northwest which is where i'm from and it influenced grunge greatly which is kind of what seattle and i mean it's aberdeen is famous for yeah. uh, with nirvana but you know in the roots of what the sound of nirvana and grunge itself and it as a kind of a political movement came from what I feel like is this kind of um, appropriation of the role that was given to you, which we're seeing in these pedagogical safe houses. So an intentional appropriation and then an intentional subversion of uh, of that language. And so what I saw in Riot Girl was it's feminist punk, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, feminist led. And so you're instead of, you know, as a counter reaction to having feminist linguistic norms applied to you, it was to utilize that to sound like a brat, right? Right. Um, and to sound like a teenage girl, right? And the valley, right? All these like linguistic norms that are so canned all the time for no for no reason. Um, right. A lot and, of that stuff is just for no reason, right? Uh, Except for maintaining power dynamics, right. exactly. you know. Um, exactly. So to take that intentionally, to be the brat, and to use it in such a militant mode. Uh, <laughs> I love the use of the word militant. That's so funny. A to be hardcore, mode. right? Which says, like, hey, like, yeah, I'm a brat, and I'm going to make brat music that gives me power. You yeah, know? exactly. It catches someone's eye, or mm-hmm. I guess ear. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like these, you know, it hits home in more than one way for you. Mm-hmm. Because not only being Pacific Northwest, but also representing that idea of defining your own identity, mm-hmm. um, 
so yeah, I think it's a really great. Yeah, um, and punk specifically was a like as a linguistic mode for me was yeah. like it, it it was the sound of it, like the words and the lyrical content of of hardcore punk that I thought. You know, I, I kind of I grew up with alternative music, so there was still edginess, right, mm-hmm. uh, a part of it, but it, it fell flat compared to punk, right? Yeah, it's it, definitely different. It, it was different like, energy. right, the means to do so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I am really saying something here as opposed to just making something for the aesthetic of it. Yeah. Right. When and music is such, mm-hmm. a, again, I think, an important tool for it is the it's a safe identity. house it's, yeah. yeah exactly it's like you know you find your niche within that yeah same same way you would find your own social group in school it's mm-hmm. like you know sometimes you just find something that really speaks to you and mm-hmm. that's that's really important yeah so, and you, you you use it right um, right definitely all right so so Nathan yeah we took a class together yes um, I believe it was winter 2021 Ooh, way could back be, when that could be wrong um, I know it was possibly. it was a winter. Yes. It was definitely a winter. It was a winter, and it was also with Dr. Ann Lobeck. Mm-hmm. We love Dr. Ann Lobeck here. Oh, yeah, yes, we um, do. <laughs> and so in that class, we covered we covered a lot of things yes. in that class. But I guess some of the stuff that's more pertaining to what we're talking about here is the history of linguistic policing, mm-hmm. specifically of identity and discrimination, like through linguistic oppression. So I was wondering if you could provide maybe some connections between what we talked about in that class with the history of linguistic mm-hmm. oppression and then applying it to this sort of study. Of right, in the self. school, right? Yeah, so it's easy for me to think about kind of the final project. Like, how did it culminate for me? And I investigated the language of dehumanization, I believe, right. in this kind of semantic analysis. Which was a very interesting project. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And also a kind of a diachronic meaning, a study of the, the history of the word or how the word has changed and its use throughout time. Mm-hmm. And I was taking some pretty big parts of history. Like, for me personally, I think, like, kind of the Holocaust studies and genocide studies in general are is horrible because it's so bad but fantastic crystallization of like of oppression and so i was able to investigate how language is used to characterize individuals right to some people up and i i kind of briefly touched this in, in the introduction for this paper mm-hmm. i talk about very much so being able to form an us and a them in yes. grammatical categories Othering, right other yeah and so I think the one big takeaway is that within the language of dehumanization, there is a a semantic sense called brutalization, which is kind of what we think of normally Mm -hmm. when we think of dehumanization, which is to reduce somebody from a non-human state. But the thing is, is that, okay, so it's done through language, right? Most most primarily, there's also symbolic equation, which is something that's kind of non-linguistic, which is to equate an individual, I guess it could be language, depending on (laughs) what school of thought you're from, but to equate an individual with a symbol. And we we do that with language. Like the medium is. Yes. So in brutalization, I think the big takeaway is that once you dehumanize somebody to do so you have to dehumanize yourself it is a two-way street of killing empathy and i see that in in these studies in the school environment with um particularly how black boys are treated black boys are treated not as boys anymore you you don't get to be a kid and so you're Number one, you're kind of another word for in this dehumanization is infrahumanization, which is not just dehumanizing somebody, stripping them of human qualities, but it is to define them as a human, but a human not worth a human life. So when you take a kid and you go, you're actually a thug, you are actually 
older and violent and more capable uh, uh capable of terrifying grown men and women you know yeah. it's just um, ridiculous it, it's it yeah it is unfair no matter what yeah. right definitely uh it is a mischaracterization and so we and like if we want to like i'm, I'm talking about like kind of the public school sphere and in this education social justice course we were looking at the linguistic process of kind of reintegration in the american school system or not reintegration integration and the asymmetry the unbalance of the linguistic resource of white american english middle class and upper class english compared to speakers of any other dialect that isn't that exactly there's like a giant power structure in play. Mm-hmm. and i think something that you know we touched on back in that class which has stuck with me you know very deeply is the idea that you know even when there is this power dynamic going on like it's all arbitrary mm-hmm. there's no there's no reason why either yeah. speech patterns should be heightened above the yes. other mm-hmm. which is just like it's just ridiculous yeah. because there's like no there's no reason for mm-hmm. it uh, other than uh, we're seeing like yeah, kind exactly. of the history of this that a lot of these concentrations of power came from the stuff that isn't arbitrary like right. resources and land exactly. uh, and the actual physical materialization of power it comes through in language because i think it's easier to police i think it's softer and a little bit more separate from that that actual realization and it can be more like subtle and mm-hmm. you know right behind closed Corsive. doors type of thing. yeah exactly. maybe it is more powerful than than real yeah. violence or because when that idea violence. then gets ingrained in society and just subconscious, mm-hmm. then that's probably the most powerful that that can be. It will, it will maintain the, exactly. the those dynamics without you even having to... Without uh, anybody trying to actively police it. Yes. So that's mm-hmm. the scary part. Right. You know. So it's our job to uh, to think about it critically and to create those spaces in which that that those power dynamics aren't replicated <laughs> and to in- intentionally in in within the punk movement right um to intentionally appropriate then subvert it as a as a symbol <laughs> so as we kind of start to wrap up this conversation mm-hmm. why do you think that it's so important to talk about self-identity in, in a linguistic sense mm-hmm. yeah and this is this is quite different than a lot of the hard science and theoretical linguistics that we do definitely right yeah. such a multifaceted like feel because there's you know, like you're saying, there's the more data-driven side of linguistics mm-hmm. and then there's the more social-driven side of linguistics, mm-hmm. which is, I think, part of the reason why we love this field is that it's, there's diverse, so, it, yeah. it's so dynamic. There's mm-hmm. so many different things that you can do with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I found myself kind of naturally being interested in this kind of stuff more than I could be in the, the real knit and grit of it. I think it's important because we all use it, right? And and this is something that a, a common experience of linguistic students and linguists in general is confronting people's conceptions and misconceptions of language. Right. And it is incredibly prevalent. I think, oh man, uh, you know, it's like we are fish in the fishbowl, but we teach fish, teach each other what it's like to swim in water. You know, it's, it's you gain so much more agency than you would ever realize, you, you know. You build little fish ladders. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I wholeheartedly believe knowledge is power, right? And uh, if they've already taken the material resources away from you and that power structure is already there, just like what we were seeing in these safe houses, the one thing that you do have is language. Language. That is yeah. the thing that's coming from you, and that is you. And you know, you know your language, and your language knows you. And um, it, it is through our words that we are able to stand up for ourselves. That is very well said. Thank Definitely, you. Yeah, yes, I can listen thank to you. you talk about this 
forever. <laughs> appreciate it. Um, so my last question of tonight mm-hmm. is, what advice can you give to someone who is maybe seeking guidance on their journey to their linguistic mm. self-identity from a linguistic perspective, obviously? Yeah, man. Um, open your ears, you know? Really, like, you got to listen to so much more and realize that, um, you know, the classroom environment is not the dynamic linguistic space that maybe some people would like you to think it is. It's very structured. And I guess it's our job to, you know, try and Mm -hmm. push it more in that direction. Yeah, I I guess say like, yeah, be a punk. I like (laughs) (laughs) uh, fight the power, so to say, like um, use your words, use your words in the ways that they don't want you to. You make fun of it. (laughs) Play play around. Definitely. Beautifully said. Thank Thank you so much. Well, I think that's a great place to end this episode. I just want to say thank you so much, Nathan, for coming on today and telling us about this incredibly interesting project topic that you worked on. It was truly a pleasure to talk with you today. Awesome, thank you. And make sure to tune in, everyone, next week to see what we talk about next. And as always, make sure to stay up to date with us on our Instagram page at Linguistics and follow us on whatever podcast platform you use to get notifications when we post. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Take care. Thank you all.